The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. Uh, James chapter number four. I want to deal with a truth that I hope will be a real help to you. And let me just say that I really want to thank you for coming tonight. And I realize uh, that um, uh, when you're in a big city area, and I realize this isn't the big city, but it's... Um, it's what we call suburbs. Uh, life moves at a faster pace. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it just does. And uh, so it's always a blessing when we do revival meetings in an area like this and see a good crowd on Monday. And I want to commend you for coming. Thank you. Let me encourage you to do something tomorrow. Text or call or email somebody and invite them to come. Uh, just a quick text or just even somebody that maybe is not here tonight that was here on Sunday or somebody else maybe that you'd be burdened uh, uh, to do. I just want to encourage you to do that. Invite somebody for our final revival service tomorrow night. And we're certainly, I'm looking forward to that final service. And then, uh, uh, you know, tomorrow night's going to be, don't you? It's going to be the greatest service of the week. Okay, it's always easy to say the next one. Don't miss the next one. Okay, uh, but, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, we'll have a great finish tomorrow night. Then, of course, the team will stay as I leave on Wednesday and uh, head back to something we uh, uh, call the, uh, uh, the Generation Youth Summit. And uh, I don't have time to go into that right now except to say uh, I believe God's raising up a generation of young people that are totally surrendered to the will of God and totally dependent upon His grace to do it. And we call that the the generation. That's T-H-E-E. How many are old enough to remember the me generation? Remember that? Okay, we figure, you know, there ought to be a the generation, a generation not focused on me but on him. And uh, so that uh, uh, that's, uh, youth summit is going to be this week at Falls Baptist Church, uh, Wednesday night through Friday night, and uh, be a part of that. And that's an exciting time. And uh, we, um, we, we really enjoy doing some of our competitions that we do with mega people, okay? So it'll be a, a great time. But James chapter number four, uh, we're going to look here in just a moment. And uh, we're going to look at 10 verses. I want to say that ahead of time to scare you. But anyway, uh, we're going to look at 10 verses here uh, tonight. And uh, we'll, get on our, um, we'll get on our rocket again, try to take a rocket ride through. Some of you are in Sunday school. We did two chapters in Sunday school. And uh, so we're going to do that again here, except a little shorter passage, 10 verses. I want to preach a message on how to be restored, how to be restored. Now, when I'm talking about restoration, I am not talking about restoration of fellowship. Do you know how much time it takes to restore fellowship with God? And the answer is enough time to agree with him about whatever the issue is. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're not talking about 1 John 1, 9. That's restoration of fellowship with God. And all it takes is enough time to get honest with God, and your fellowship is restored. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But what I'm talking about is restoration in the sense of being just like it was before you sinned the very first time. Uh, let me just uh, stop for a moment and make a, come approach the subject matter from another angle than bring these two together. Um, it's a couple of years ago now, almost two years ago, uh, we were having some opening meetings at um, uh, the Baptist College of Ministry and an evangelist was preaching, and he was preaching on strongholds. And he said something that I agree with, but I had never thought of it in these terms. He said, a stronghold is not necessarily something that gets you every day. Now, certainly if there's a sin that gets you every day, that, we'd consider that a stronghold, wouldn't we? Uh, not even really a sin that gets you every couple days. He said, a stronghold is simply a sin that keeps coming back. It might be three weeks. It might be every month. It might even be every six months. But the problem is, it keeps coming back. 
So how do you deal with a stronghold? And I remember, by the way, as that evangelist said that, uh, you ever had the Holy Spirit talk to you? Not in audible terms, you don't understand. But it was like the Holy Spirit says, you've got three uh, strongholds you need to deal with. And uh, in fact, um, uh, I remember going home and explaining the message to my wife who was not able to be there. And I said, God convicted me of three things that I believe God wants me to tell you what they are. So I told him my wife, and then I said, now, if you want to say anything, you can. And my wife, my wife wisely didn't. But anyway, uh, but, uh, but a stronghold, it's something that keeps coming back. Oh, you might have victory for a while, but boom, it's, there it is again. And I remember when he said that, I thought, now, how do you overcome a stronghold? How do you get, a, get that, that, uh, that sin that you just can't seem to get it out for good? Uh, so, well, this passage of Scripture, James chapter 4, I believe deals with that. So we could call it how to restore. And what I mean by being restored is it being just like it was before you sinned the very first time. Do you remember before you sinned the first time, you weren't hooked? You weren't addicted? It wasn't a stronghold. So we could also call the message how to deal with strongholds. Now, if you go to James chapter number 4, look at verse number 10. And this is why I believe we can say this. Look what it says. Humble yourself on the side of the Lord. And then what does it say? He shall lift you up. Now, think about this, friends. Let's just be basic here tonight. If he's going to lift you up and infer something, you know what it infers? You're down. You're down for the count. You can't be lifted up if you're already up, right? You've got to be down for the count. So this passage of Scripture, then, is dealing with how to be lifted up, I guess we could say, how to be restored, how to deal with the stronghold. You can frame it in what language you'd like to, but I think you get the concept. So what I'd like to do here... I see in these 10 verses, and we're going to have to move quickly through a few of them. Number one, the problem. Number two, I see a principle. And number three, I see a pathway. So could we say the problem of strongholds, a principle to overcome those strongholds, and then a pathway. So let's look, if we could, please, at verse number one. We're going to move quickly in James chapter four. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Now, can we say this? Number one, we have an enemy within. We have an enemy within. Have you ever noticed that after you got saved, there was still something inside of you that was always trying to pull you away from God? You ever notice that? Did you sing tonight? You notice the words on the screen a moment ago? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know what I'm talking about? That's what these first three verses are talking about. We have within us a traitor. We have an enemy within. The Bible theologically calls it the flesh. And it's constantly there trying to pull us away from God. We all understand that. It's a traitor within. Now, I think most of us understand when it comes to warfare that it's a whole lot easier to fight an enemy without than it is an enemy within. Uh, many years ago, I was driving down the road. I, I, I guess I needed something to, to keep me awake. And I turned down the radio and started listening to a documentary on a spy from Israel. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know why, but as a kid on, I have been always fascinated by the history of modern Israel. Uh, the first conflict in 1948, the 1967, the Six-Day War in 1973. And, of course, some of you that went through that, you remember those conflicts as well. And... Uh, so I was listening to this, and uh, there was a spy from Israel. I don't know how he did it, but he got into the Syrian government. And he got into the military and went all the way up 
in confidence up to the top of the military brass. I don't know how he did it, but he did. And uh, so one time, uh, they were, of course, uh, always plotting strategy against Israel. And by, at this time, Syria owned the Golan Heights. How many remember the Golan Heights? Okay, I'm sure some of you older ones do, myself included. I remember the Golan Heights. And uh, at this time, Syria was evidently uh, putting in gun embankments in the Golan Heights. We all know what they did with those. Of course, they'd be lob mortars across the Sea of Galilee into Israeli towns. It was a big deal. And I don't know what the military strategy was, but evidently they were talking about how do we hide these gun embankments so the Israeli Air Force doesn't knock them out. And the spy, you know what he said? There's a certain tree that grows real fast, okay? I don't know what it is. Of course, in, our, in Wisconsin, it would be an arborvitae, okay? I don't know what it is out here, but I don't know what it is in Israel. But there's a tree that grows really fast and, of course, has high a level of foliage. And he says, well, why don't you plant the such and such a tree? It'll grow fast, cover the gun embankments. They won't see it. Of course, this is before the technology of our day. And uh, so, oh, that's a great idea. We'll do that. So he goes home, gets out a shortwave radio. You know, he had it wired into his kitchen table, and he wires back to Israel. Hey, give it a couple of months and bomb the such and such tree. So a few uh, months later, you know, and, uh, they had the Israeli Air Force came out and knocked out all those gun embankments, just took them right out. You know, at that point, Syria was in trouble. You know why? Had an enemy within. Now, uh, uh, unfortunately, he was found out, and they hung him in the square of Meda- uh, Damascus, but he did a lot of damage before his life was taken. Okay, so we all understand an enemy within, that's a bad deal. But the Bible not only teaches us we have an enemy within, which causes us trouble. Notice something else in verse number four. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So we got another problem. I call this the enemy without. And the enemy without is, anybody want to venture a guess on verse number four? Who's the enemy in verse four? And the answer is the world. Have you ever noticed that the world is constantly advancing thinking that is completely anti-biblical? Uh, I remember one time I was preaching, and I don't, I, I'd preached on the world. It was either love not the world or be not conformed to the world, something like that. And I was preaching to teenagers. I just love teenagers. You know what I mean? They just... Teenagers are great. And some sarcastic teenager comes up, you know, and he says, Hey, preacher, that pulpit you're preaching from is worldly. And I looked at him and said, No, it's not. He said, It's earthy, but it's not worldly. This pulpit is earthy, but it's not worldly. Did you know that? Something that's worldly is something that comes from the world system that hates God. <laughs> That's what worldliness means. When the Bible is talking about world, it's talking about that world system that hates God. Now, we have a world system out here that hates God. Have you ever figured that out? (laughs) And it uses Hollywood, and it uses media, and it uses all kinds of venues to spot out its thinking, its theology, and its philosophy, which is anti-biblical and anti-God. We live in a world that just diametrically opposes the Word of God. So we have an enemy without. A whole message could be preached on that, a whole message. But that's not my point. My point is, as a result of the enemy within, and as a result of the enemy without, there are times when we, uh, we make poor decisions, we make sinful choices, and if we're not careful, guess what happens? We get a stronghold. Sin becomes in our life, and we just can't kick it. Sometimes we don't even know where it began. Perhaps parents struggle with the same thing. I find sometimes an angry father produces angry kids. Have you ever thought about that? I see that all the time. And it doesn't have to be that way. God's grace is bigger than that. But that can't happen. 
And uh, so you, you have these kind of things. So now, that brings us then to point number two. You can, I think we can all identify, okay, yeah, I can see. I got some areas that keep popping back up. I'd really like to see those things taken care of. Okay, that brings us to point number two. There's a principle. Now, if you're going to miss the whole message, don't miss this principle. Because the principle's key. Now, look what it says in verse number five. We're just walking through this quickly. It says, do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy. Now, isn't that a strange verse? Now, when you do some study on this, commentators have all kinds of takes on it. But I'm going to just be honest with you. This is what I think it's saying. The spirit that dwelleth in us. Anybody have an idea what that might be? (laughs) I think we recognize that's the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. Lusteth the envy kind of throws us. But the word lust in the Bible literally means to desire. Now, we think of lust only in the negative, but the word lust in in Old English as well as the Bible would be neutral. It could be a good desire. It could be a bad desire. The idea of envy here would have the idea of jealousy. I would hope every man out here is jealous over your wife. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) That's not a wrong jealousy. That's a good jealousy. God's jealous over us. So I believe what this is saying is the Holy Spirit desires, jealously desires our advance. He jealously desires us to be victorious. He jealously desires us to have a great relationship with him. Okay, so can we say this? The Holy Spirit's pulling for us. Uh, how many out here would say you're a fan? You're a fan of something. It could be, it could be a sport team or whatever. Okay, you understand what it is to be a fan. I, you're in Los Angeles. I would assume you're pulling for the Dodgers. I would assume, but maybe not if you're from another area. But, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, you know what fans do? They pull for their team. I mean, they really pull for their team. And uh, we had uh, years ago in our Christian school a wrestling team. Now, that's almost non-existent today. It does occur in some Christian schools, but uh, our, our other school I went to uh, doesn't have a wrestling team anymore, but they did. And uh, I went to a lot of wrestling matches because I had a lot of friends that wrestled. And uh, coming to the wrestling match was a lady that was a secretary, church secretary, one of the most extroverts of extroverts I have ever met in my life, just out there. And uh, she would come to the match, and she'd cheer for her eighth-grade son, who happened to be terrible at wrestling. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he was no good. He'd get pinned almost every match. But she would be up there pulling for her son. And you never wanted to sit next to her because she was so into the wrestling match that she would take the person next to her and do to that person what she thought her son should be doing. You with me? So you might find yourself in a headlock. You might feel yourself pinned on the bleachers. You know what I'm talking about? Because she was all in, you know what I'm saying? She was pulling for her son, and that was a big deal considering how bad he was, okay? So she was pulling for her son. Now, some of you watch football like that, you know what I'm talking about? Here you are watching football, and, and uh, uh, you know, there's a missed tackle, and you end up tackling the couch. You, you ever seen people like that? I have. And, you know, if you're... Uh, if you're a Chargers fan, uh, which I doubt anybody is, there's a lot of missed tackles, you know what I'm talking about? And so uh, you're going uh, to be tackling a lot of furniture. What, what are you, you're, you're into it. I, I love soccer games. You see all the moms and dads pulling forward, and the ball goes rolling across, and there's, you know, there's like three or four kids that can kick the ball in the net, and you see all the parents over there kicking nothing. You know what I'm talking about? Why? They're pulling for their son or daughter, kicking in the net, you know. So we all get that. You know, we all understand what it is to pull. Now, I'm not trying in any way to be irreverent to the Holy Spirit, but I believe he's pulling for us. Now, the one difference is we pull for teams 
on the sidelines. But this says the spirit that dwelleth in us. So he's pulling for us inside of us, kind of like what we talked about last night. Now, I know this is a dumb illustration, but hopefully with last night's message, it'll make sense. And it really is a dumb illustration. It could never happen. But let's imagine Joe Madden from the Chicago Cubs called me up and said, um, Dr. Jim, we want you to lead off for the Cubs in the playoff game tomorrow night. Now, he'd never do that, of course. But uh, if that were to happen, do you know, what would, you know what I would be in the next 24 hours? A nervous wreck. You know why? I can't hit 90-mile-an-hour fastballs. Let me give you a secret. I can't hit 60-mile-an-hour fastballs. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe some of you don't. (laughs) But um, I'd be real nervous. Now, I know this sounds kind of stupid and a little spooky and whatever, but imagine the spirit of Ted Williams came to me, the best hitter ever. I think he batted 400 in his career, something like that, or 399, whatever it was. And the spirit of Ted Williams says, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll get inside of you, and my ability will become yours. And I will enable you to hit that ball. Now, again, that's never going to happen. It's crazy. It's stupid. But the point is, you catch where I'm coming from. Now I wouldn't have the fear. I'm thinking, oh, he batted 400. And that means if I bat five times, I'm going to get two hits. My point would simply be this, friends. The Holy Spirit is not just inside of us cheering us on. He's inside of us, and he wants to enable us. So this is a very important, a very important truth. We talked about it last night. So we can leave it for the moment. But notice the next verse. You say, well, preacher, how, how, how does that happen? Well, the next verse tells us. Look what it says in verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto what? This is the principle. Now, grace is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Grace is supernatural. Grace is God interacting with man. There's so many different nuances and angles of grace, but let's simply put it, grace, could we say, is the Holy Spirit supernaturally doing something in our lives, whether it's joy, peace, strength, whatever, fulfillment, satisfaction. It's just great. There's so many different nuances to grace, but it's supernatural. Now, God says he giveth grace to who? And it says he resists who? The proud. Now, the word resist is really interesting. It has the idea uh, of a military line back in the day, uh, and it would be shield to shield. You know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine just this long line, shield to shield, and you're trying to break though that just all alone. You're trying to break that, that line. You know that's going to happen? You're going to be resisted. Now, for all of us, none of us can even relate with that illustration because that's never happened in our experience. We, we can't, that military metaphor. So let me use a modern-day metaphor. I would, uh, uh, back when I was a kid, I, I don't know why they don't do it anymore, but they used to name defenses. Do you remember that, some of you my age and older? The Doomsday Defense, you remember them? That was the Dallas Cowboys and the Purple People Eaters. Okay, that was the Minnesota Vikings. And the Orange Crush Defense, that was the Denver Broncos. And I don't know why. The, the Monsters of Midway, now that's a good one. That was the Chicago Bears. And then you guys had one out here called the Fearsome Foursome. Uh, the, the, uh, I think it was um, uh, Merlin Olson, I think, and the other Rams. And um, Deacon Jones, that's the guy I was trying to think of, uh, was on that, li- that uh, line. Now, let's just imagine, and you can take any one of those football lines you want. And, I, of course, I think of the Monsters of Midway with... Uh, Refrigerator Perry, 300 pounds, number 72, uh, Clemson University. <laughs> I mean, and, and uh, anyway, if, if you were given the football and said, I want you to go through that front line, you know, you know what would happen? You'd be resistant. If it was me, I know what would happen. I'd be driven five yards back and be half buried by the end of the play and may not be alive. You know what I'm talking about? 
I'd be resisted. Now, God says he resists the proud. That's the picture. But it's God doing the resisting, which means there's no human error here. You're going to be resisted. So you say, well, Richard, I I don't want to be resisted. I want God to grace me. I want the Holy Spirit to to not only pull for me, but he's inside of me. I want him to jealously desire victory and and, uh, to get me through this uh, this stronghold. Okay, well, the Bible says here's the key. It's humility versus pride. Now, let me give you two nuances. Now, let me just warn you. This is the most painful part of the message. Can you hang with me for a moment? Number one, humility is honesty. And pride is dishonesty. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, humility is being honest with the appropriate people. Can I say this? Somebody has said the church is a place where people ought to hurt out loud. Do you know I really like that definition? Uh, In my home church, um, uh, we've got small Sunday school tables, and it's, it's wonderful. You get to know the guys and I remember one particular table I was at that had a unique spirit of honesty that was appropriate, and it was, it was, it was really remarkable. Uh, from time to time, particularly one man is really the one who set the pace, but he would come sometimes up to me and, with tears. He'd say, Dr. Jim, I had a rough week. He said something. He was a mechanic. He said something happened at work, and he said, I cussed out the boss. He said, I was angry. I threw things, and he's just crying. He sits on the table, he tells the table. And you know what everybody did? They prayed for him. Some other guys said, you know, yeah, I I struggled with this or this. And and there was an honesty around the table. And I remember leaving that table that day and thinking, man, you could feel the grace. It was just all over because nobody was playing a game. In other words, the mask was off and everybody was being honest. Yeah, we we got needs, but we can look to Jesus to overcome these things. It was just a remarkable atmosphere. That's, I believe, what the Bible's talking about. It's appropriate. It's in the right place, the right people. But God gives grace to people who are honest. But he resists people who act like they're something they're not. You know, can I tell you something? I'm not perfect. I bet you're not either. Do you know what? I got problems. I bet you you do too. The truth is, friends, honesty is just getting honest. And that's a place the church ought to be when you, you ought to be, you know, go to somebody you know that loves the Lord and say, you know, hey, could you pray for me? I'm struggling over here, struggling with this. The point, friends, is God graces people who are honest, but he resists people who act like they're something they're not. Now, let me just be dead honest with you. I grew up in a preacher's home, and I thank the Lord for my dad because he was very, he was honest and very transparent. I never felt like he was trying to act like something he wasn't. But I will say, growing up, I, I heard a lot of preaching. And I remember growing up hearing preachers, and here's my reaction when they were done preaching. Wow. I could never be like that. Now, I'm going to be dead honest with you. I don't think that's the way preaching should be. In other words, no preacher is a super Christian. I can just tell you that right now. No preacher is. They may package themselves as that, but I can guarantee you they're not. I've lived long enough to know there ain't no super Christians. You with me? We're all weak as water, and we need Jesus, and without him we can do nothing. See? You know, but I, I've learned as I've grown up, there's other preachers didn't package themselves as super Christians. You know what they package themselves as? Absolutely weak, absolutely needy. But Jesus enables them to do everything that he needs to do it. And Jesus can do it for you too. And you know what happens when you walk out of a service like that? It's like, wow. 
if God could use him, you know, he might be able to use me. You know, I think that's a lot more biblical, don't you? One of my favorite people on planet Earth is a medical doctor by the name of Tom Johnson. Anybody just happen to know what we affectionately call Dr. Tom? I know my team does. One of the reasons I love Dr. Tom is because what you see is what you get. <laughs> Nothing for Dr. Tom to stop. Uh, Dr. Jim, we need to pray right now. And I don't care. We might be walking through. I remember we were walking through one of those oasis over, a, you know, right there in front of McDonald's. We're praying. You know, that's Dr. Tom. Just, just, just honestly, just out there, witness to anybody, anywhere. You always got to put extra time when you go somewhere with Dr. Tom because he's going to stop somebody and try to win them Jesus. Just an unusual guy. But I love Dr. Tom when he gets up to preach. He gets up. He brings, uh, you know, a bunch of, he brings books, and he has notes, and they're falling off the pulpit. And, and I'll be honest with you, his message is usually a homiletical disaster. I mean, I'm trying to think, where's he going? I, I can't figure this out. I don't think he's going anywhere. And he finishes the message, and the altar is back. People are crying, getting right with God. And, you know, every time I see Dr. Tom, and I'm with him, here's what I think. I think, Unbelievable. You know, I think if God could use Dr. Tom, he could use anybody. That's how I think. Now, I love that, don't you? Don't you just love that? I love weakness, don't you? Don't you just love to see weakness? As a kid, one of the things I did like as a kid is I got to see famous preachers up close. And you know what? I, I realized they're human beings. You know, some picked their fingernails. Some got weird habits. Some of them got old quirks of personality. Wow, I'm thinking this is great. My point, friends, is simply this. God gives grace to the humble. In other words, it's not that we have to go air our dirty laundry to everybody, but I will say this. If the Holy Spirit tells us to, we're not ashamed to. Because we're just weak people. God says we're all weak. And we need Jesus, and he's the one that meets our needs. So let's just tell people. When God says, you know, sometimes in a counseling situation, God might say, hey, why don't you tell them about that struggle you had, now God, uh, what God's doing there. You know what I'm talking about? See, God gives grace to the humble. Humility is just honesty. Just honesty. It's pulling the face mask off and just being who you are. By the way, that's a really good parenting tip. <laughs> you know, one of the things I appreciated about my dad is the same man that preached on Sunday is the same guy who showed up on Monday at the dinner table. <laughs> and you know, as a result of that, my dad blessed me. He never tried to act like he was something he wasn't at home. He never tried to act like that. He just was who he was all the time. <laughs> and whether he was in the pulpit or whether he was in ministry or whether he was at home. So that uh, well, was a blessing. So uh, God gives grace to the humble. You getting that? But the second aspect of humility, not only is it honesty and pride is dishonesty or one is being, you know, transparent the other one's acting like we're something we're not there's something else humility is dependence on jesus and pride is independence now you say well preacher how do i know i'm dependent on jesus well let me give you a little a little uh, help here several years ago someone was preaching i think it was my older brother but i'm not for sure and the statement was made prayer is the breath of dependence wow that's true isn't it In fact, I don't believe that you can depend on Jesus without prayer. Because prayer is just, whether it's silent or whether it's out loud, is, God, I need you. So could we put this? That would mean that prayerlessness is the declaration of independence. 
Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but I am trying to jar your thinking. If you pray five minutes or less a day, can I say this carefully? You probably are proud. I don't know how you can live on five minutes of prayer a day, because I don't know about you. I need God a whole lot more than five minutes. (laughs) See, the point is, prayer really indicates whether or not we're depending on God or not. And if we can survive with prayerlessness, we're really saying, God, I really don't need you that much. And that is pride. (laughs) Humility is, I need you, God. So we see the two aspects here. Now, that's the principle. I told you it was rough. I I warned you ahead of time, okay? It's rough. But it is a blessing. Because, you know, humility is not that, I mean, it sounds hard. Humility is just getting honest and getting, God, I need you. It's like this. Can I put humility in just two phrases? This is not original with me. God, I have sinned, and God, I need you. (laughs) See, that's humility. Okay, now that brings us then to the pathway. We gave you the principle. Now let's go to the pathway. Verses 7 to 10 give us the pathway to restoration or the pathway to being lifted up. They give us the pathway to, uh, to dealing with these addictions or these sins that seem to uh, be difficult to, to get them out of our lives. Now, in this passage, I hate to scare you, but I'm going to do it. 7 to 10 has 10 imperatives. That's 10 commands. You say, preacher, we got to listen to a 10-point message still? <laughs> No, I got good news for you. Mingled among those 10 imperatives are three future tenses. The three future tenses are the key to understanding the 10 imperatives. In other words, God's not just telling us to do 10 things. He's telling us to do three things. Now, so every imperative, when there's a future tense, that means that those imperatives in front of the future tense are what needs to be done in order for the future tense to occur. You say, preacher, I'm losing you. Okay, let me put it this way. If years ago my dad were to come to me and say, Jim, clean your room and we'll go to Baskin Robbins. So that would mean if I cleaned the room, what would happen in the future? And the answer is, we'd go to Baskin Robbins. In my home, my dad always kept his promises. I don't care what it was. He, I never remember him once breaking a promise. It was big with him. Promises were big. And he made a lot of them, so it wasn't a matter of not making promises. Okay, so that's the idea. Do this, and this is going to happen. That's what God's using. This is the phenomena that's occurring in verses 7 through 10. It's a phenomenon that occurs in English, but it also occurs in Greek, in which the Bible was uh, written. So let's look at the very first one. You've got to deal with your will. Look at verse number 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and here comes the future tense. He shall flee from you. So God says there's two things you need to do. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and here's what will happen. The devil will go. So number one, I'm going to say, deal with your will. Deal with your will. What do you mean? Okay, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. So basically, it's this simple. It's saying, God, I want your will. I don't care what it is. I want your will. And in Jesus' name, I do not want the devil's will. Do you know, my friend, can I say this? That when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he made a stunning statement. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Whoa. Do you know what that word power is? It's the word for authority. Can I say this? Did you know that Jesus can boss the devil around? Did you know that? But he won't boss the devil around until you are complete submission to his will. Can I put it this way? You cannot resist the devil's will if you are submitted to it partially. You tracking with me? The only way the devil's will can be dealt with is total submission to the will of God. 
You're saying, God, I want your will. And in Jesus' name, I don't want the devil's will at all. And God says, okay, fine. He's, he'll, he's going. He's, he's get, I'm getting him out of there. He'll flee. He'll run. So I'm going to simply say, friends, many times people don't deal with their wills. In other words, they're doing a little bit of what the devil wants them to do, but they don't like the devil working over here. They don't mind this or this, but they don't want the devil over here. So they're caving into the devil in part of their life, and guess what? You can't be selective in resisting the devil's will. You've got to be all into God's will and all against his will. Does that make sense? Perhaps this illustration will help. I hate to give it. I hate to give it. Because every time I get it, everybody gets freaked out. Okay, don't freak out over the illustration. It really happened. But it does illustrate the point. You won't forget the point. About two years ago, maybe three, I was in Florida, finished one of our youth rallies. And a young man, about 25 years old, walks up to me. And he clearly has the marks of the world. I mean, he's, I found out later, or actually I found out before, he was a preacher's kid. He was living with a girl, drugs, everything. I mean, he, he, he had the marks of the world all over him. And he comes up to me and he says, preacher, could I talk to you? I said, sure. So we sit down and there was a youth pastor who was related to him who sat down. And there's a threesome of us. And, and uh, here's what he said. Uh, he said, preacher, can you help me? He said, man, he said, a couple nights ago. He said, uh, my girlfriend and I were trying to go to sleep, and uh, all of a sudden, he said, we heard a knock at our bedroom door. He said, there's only one problem. We're the only ones that live in our apartment. So he said, I was freaked out. I got up, opened the door, but nothing was there. Checked the front door. It's locked. Checked all the doors in the house. It's all locked. He said, so I closed the bedroom door, go back, hop, hop back in, and all of a sudden, at his bedroom door. Now, that's freaky, isn't it? That's just freaky. Let's just all admit that that's freaky. Okay, he gets out, opens the door. Nothing's there. Same thing. Nothing's there. So he goes back to bed third time. This time, he had heard somewhere. I know this sounds crazy. He had heard somewhere, if you take a picture and it's a demon, it'll come up on the picture. By the way, that's not in the Bible. I just want you to know that's not in the Bible. Okay, so... He goes and uh, opens the door, bedroom door. He takes his cell phone. He frames up the shot, you know, and he hits the button. And then he turns the cell phone around. And he says, here's the shot. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something, friends. When I saw the picture, I freaked out. <laughs> there was a being in the door. Looked like a girl about eight years old. And you could see through her. And her eye sockets were gone. There was no eye sockets. She had a pitted face that would come from extreme acne, which would be almost impossible in an eight-year-old girl, and uh, straw-like hair. Didn't even look real. And she, again, you could see through her, and she was completely in proportion. You say, ah, oh, preacher, it was Photoshopped. Now, if it was Photoshopped, that guy was a phenomenal actor because he was totally freaked out. And he says to me, preacher, he said, can you help me? Well, you know how the devil is. You start playing games with the devil, and he can scare you half to death. And I believe in our country we're going to see more of this kind of stuff because you go to a foreign field, and foreign missionaries who come from those kind of animistic uh, religions, they will tell you this kind of stuff happens all the time. <laughs> we're just Satan uses different tactics in America, though I think that will change. So um, he says, Preacher, can you help me? I said, uh, well, I said, that girl, you, are you married to her? No, I'm not. It's my girlfriend. I said, well, I can start with this. I said, let me, and I will be honest with you. When he said, can you help me? You know what my first thought was? Which class? I don't think they taught me this in school. 
So I'm wheeling through my brain saying, God, I need some help. And it was like the Lord said, James 4, 7. So I looked at him and I said, I, I, I think I can help you. I said, yeah, girl, you're living with you. No, it's not okay, okay, you're not okay. The Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's real simple. What you need to do is totally submit to the will of God and then you can resist the devil and he's got to go. I said, that's simple. So I said, that girl you're living with, you're not married, you need to move out tonight. And you know what he said? No way, man. I'm not doing that. And I remember looking at him and I said, now, my friend, I want to tell you something. I cannot help you and neither can God. Because if you are not willing to totally submit to the will of God, you can't resist the will of the enemy. But if you're totally submitted to the will of God, you can resist the enemy. He's got to go. Isn't that good? All I'm simply saying, don't get caught on the, on the, the, uh, the, the um, whatever of the illustration Get caught on the fact that submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he, he'll flee from you. You've got to deal with your will. And I believe today this is why many people have strongholds in their life. Because there's some area of their life they really don't want to yield to God. And you can't say no to the devil when you're saying yes to him. That's the simple point. So number one, you have to deal with your will. Number two, you have to deal with your walk. Now look at verse number 8. Draw nigh to God. Okay, there's our command. And now this only has one command. The other one had two and then a future tense. This has one and a future tense. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. God is no respecter of persons. Can I say something that may shock you? Do you know why Peter, James, and John were closer to Jesus than the rest of them? This is going to shock you. Because they wanted to. You know why some people in this room are closer to God than somebody else? Because they want to. God's not a respecter of persons. He says, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Have you ever noticed this? This is going to be profound. Have you ever noticed that when you walk toward a full-length mirror, the guy in the full-length mirror takes a step towards you? Have you ever noticed that? You take another step, the guy takes a step towards you. You say, preacher, I am so glad I came tonight. I can go home and say, take a step toward the mirror. The person in the mirror takes a step toward you. Boy, that'll change your life. Well, it actually will if you think of it in the terms of God. You take a step toward God, guess what he'll do? He takes a step toward you. Drawing out of God simply means this, God, I want you. God, I want you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read the book of Psalms. Because every time I read the book of Psalms, you know what I get the idea of? The psalmist wants God. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so my soul panteth after thee, O God. You ever get the idea of that? My soul thirsted for God, for the living God. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. The psalmist is constantly crying out for God. My soul followeth hard after God. Psalm 62 and verse number 8. Okay, so we get that. Now, a whole message could be preached on that, but you've got, you've got to deal with your walk. You want to overcome strongholds? Well, it all starts with having a relationship with God. God, I need you. I want you. Again, a whole message could be preached on that because that's a, that's a truth in and of itself. And who knows, we might preach it tomorrow night if the Lord leads us to. But it brings us to the final point. You got to deal with your will. You got to deal with your walk. And number three, this is the biggie. You got to deal with your wrongs. You got to deal with your wrongs. Go back to verse number eight. Right after that, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double minded. Now, we're, we're going to get in just a moment to the future tense. There's actually seven commands in a row. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. You know what that means, don't you? Deal with your outward sins. 
Deal with your outward sins. You know, there's sometimes in our outward sins, there's some other things we need to do other than confess it to God. Many years ago, there was a pastor, his last name was Marsh, and the pastor was preaching one day on this truth of, you know, if you cover your sin, you won't prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And he noticed while he preached, there seemed to be a young man out in the congregation, a young man in his 20s, in just agony. After the service, the young man comes to him and says, Preacher Marsh, you have put me in a terrible fix. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, I work for such a boat maker down the way. And he said, um, I've been stealing copper nails from him. He said, I'm building a boat in my backyard, and copper is expensive. Copper nails are expensive, so every day I work, I just throw a few copper nails in my pocket. He said, I've excused it, figuring he doesn't pay me enough, or he's got so many, he'll never miss them. But he said, I realize those are lame excuses. I'm nothing more than a common thief. The preacher said, well, why don't you just go talk to him? He said, oh, preacher, I can't do that. He's an atheist. He hates God. He mocks me. He mocks other Christians. I couldn't. I just couldn't. It would just ruin my testimony. Well, the preacher urged him to leave that to God and just to trust the Lord and do it. And, and so service, uh, service after service, the preacher would get up. Each time he'd look out there, see that young man in agony. One time the young man came up to him and said, oh, preacher, those copper nails are digging into my conscience. They're killing me. One Sunday morning, the preacher gets up to preach, looks out, and the young man is beaming. Of course, he knows something's happened. So after the service, he walks up to him and says, okay, tell me what happened. He said, preacher, you're not going to believe it. He said, those copper nails were killing me. He said, I finally decided I don't care what happens. I don't care if I go to jail. I don't care. I'm getting it right. He said, I sat down with the boss. I told him I've been stealing copper nails from him. I'd do whatever it took to get it restitution, make it right. He said, he kind of looked at me kind of oddly, kind of strangely. And he called my name and says, I always thought you were a fake. But he said, any religion that calls a man to come back and confess what you've done, there's got to be something to it. <laughs> You see, you know what he was doing? He was cleansing his hands. Cleansing his hands. That's all it is, is getting right where you know you need to because of outward sins. And then it says, purify your heart, she double-minded. You know what that is? Dealing with inward sin. Do you know what the inward sin that is the root of all sin is? Unbelief. Do you know what James calls a double-minded man? Calls a man who... Like the wave of the sin, driven a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. It believes God, doubts God. Believes God, doubts God. Believes God, doubts God. And the Bible says, "Let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord." So when it says, "Purify your hearts, you double-minded," you know what the bottom line is. Deal with your unbelief, because every sin you and I have is fueled by unbelief. So God is saying, identify the unbelief and deal with it. That's purify your hearts, you double-minded. Get rid of the unbelief that's fueling your sin. So, uh, so first of all, deal with inward sin, deal with the uh, outward sin, deal with the inward sin. And then last of all, the atmosphere in which those things must be dealt with is the last little bit. So read with me verse number 9. You look and 10. Be afflicted. There's going to be five commands in a row. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what will God do? He'll lift you up. So you say, well, preacher, what's this saying? Okay, it's saying the attitude, the atmosphere in which you deal with inward sins and deal with outward sins is be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaven is humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Now, what does this mean? I'll be honest with you. I puzzled over it for years because I know that God forgives us not because we mourn and weep. 
He forgives us because we got honest with God. God, I was wrong. And I mean, boom. In other words, we don't believe in Baptist penance. You with me? I think a lot of Baptists would make really good Catholics. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Okay, if I really feel sorry for my sin, God will forgive you. No, God doesn't forgive you because you go through these two or three days of beating yourself. God forgives you because he said he would (laughs) based on his finished work. So certainly this can't be in view here because, like I mentioned, a restoration of fellowship with God takes just about as much time as it does to admit you're wrong and agree with God. So what's this talking about? This, I believe, is talking about restoration. Not a fellowship. But so it's like it was before the day. In other words, it's being resensitized. It's being just like it was before the day you sinned the first time. Now, maybe this illustration will help, and I hope it will. I've had 150-plus young men travel on our team over the last 33 years. So uh, uh, I've had a lot of young men uh, go through our vehicle and through our ministry. And several years ago, one of those young men said, Brother Van Gelden, I want to tell you something. He said, um, when I was young, he said, some difficult circumstances came into our family. And he said, um, I think it was the death of his mother and some other things, and he got bitter. He said, I got bitter. And he said, when I got bitter, he said, I began to look at some things I shouldn't look at. And, um, yeah, I think it was early junior high, something like that. I could be wrong on the exact age, but it was, it was definitely before high school. And, and, and before long, he had what we would call a stronghold. Now, as time went on and made decisions, he actually sensed the call of God on his life, and, and he began to make good decisions, but he would always find himself falling back into that sin. Well, after he graduated from high school, he made a decision that I think is a really remarkable decision for a young man. He decided, I need to go to a Christian college that really is strict and has a lot of good rules because I need it. Now, that's unusual for some kid that's 17, 18 years old. So he chose his college, felt like the Lord led him, and um, he got to school and began to grow. And he began to learn certain truths he'd never seen before uh, about, you know, spiritual growth and sanctification. And, and he began to see victory he'd never seen. In other words, now instead of every week, we're going months and, and then all semester, no trouble. And then just when he would go home, there'd be a problem. But it would always come back. Again, now we're talking six months, sometimes even longer. But uh, it seemed to always pop back. Well... Time went on, graduated from college. He's seen some real growth and, and uh, seen a whole lot more victory than he'd ever seen in his life. And defeats became rare, but they were, not, they were still existent. Well, God uh, led him to a young lady, and the relationship uh, began to flourish. He believed, believed it was God's will, and so he talked with her father. And he was very, since he was going to preach her, he felt the need to be honest about his past. And so he was honest with the man about his past, and, and the man gave him permission. And uh, so they got engaged, set a date, and began to move that direction. Well, somewhere along the line, I don't know what the circumstances were, but a situation came up where he had a failure, had, since, it was the first time since his engagement. And when he had that failure, of course, he felt terrible about it. It had been probably months, as I, as I, as I understand it, maybe even a year. And so he knew what he had to do. He, I, he knew, i got to call this man, my future father-in-law. I've got to call him. So he picks up the phone, calls his future father-in-law, and tells him what happened. And his future father-in-law said, um, the marriage is postponed. And it may be off. He said, give me three days. I'm going to uh, seek God's face and 
three days from now, I'll tell you what my decision is. Now, that young man told me, he said, when he hung up the phone, he said, for three days, he said, I mourned. And he said, I wept. And he said, I mourned over that sin and I wept over that sin. Don't miss this. Like I had never wept over it before in my life. He said, and I hated that sin. I hated it like I had never hated it before. I saw it as about to take the most precious thing God had ever given me outside of my salvation and the spiritual things God had done for me. I saw him taking the most precious thing God had ever given me away. He said, I hated that sin. He said, for three days I wept, I mourned. I hated that sin and I hated it from the depths of my soul. Three days later, he picked up the phone. He called that man. The man said, I've been praying about it. He said, I believe God wants us to go through with the wedding. That young man's been married now for several years, and definitely I will say God's hand is on his life. There's no doubt about it. And you know what I talked to him last? You know what he told me? Now, he's very careful. He uses all the protections that you need to care to protect, but here's what he said. He said, you know, from that day to this, he said, I have never been tempted to look at garbage again. Can I say this carefully? He's been restored. Humble yourself on the side of the Lord and he'll lift you up. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.